Today we have Robert Hefner. He is a professor of anthropology and former director of the Institution on Culture, Religion and World Affairs, CURA, at Boston University. He was part of a panel, Religious Freedom, Harmony and Inclusion, chaired by Timothy Shah, and within it, Robert Hefner was a discussant. Thank you very much. And I'm going to begin, uh, since we are here in Indonesia, I am going to begin with what is, for some Indonesians, the manner of greeting at a conference like this, which is to say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Om Santi Santi Om. Salam sejahtera. Shalom Rahayu. That kind of um, multilingual, multi-terminological plurality might strike many of us in this room, as it did me some years ago when it became something of a custom. In the Reformasi post-1999 era, might uh, strike us as uh, kind of silly or awkward or just sort of formulaic, which it of course can be. But it also reminds us, it reminds me of something that the great political scientist Al Stepan, who's a colleague of, I think, or a friend of several of us here, said some years ago and pointed out in some articles that he wrote about Muslim majority societies in certain areas of the world, uh, like one of which was Indonesia. Al Stepan was the greatest for in the United States, the greatest theorist of democratic transitions uh, of the late 20th century and early uh, early 21st century. He was a friend of Indonesia. He came here and was very, very enthusiastic and optimistic. He was also a very close, I forgot who our, the name of our sister from Tunisia is, but he was also a very close advisor to Ganushi and the Ahnada party in Tunisia. But one of the things he said about uh, certain Muslim-majority countries, and he singled out Senegal and um, Indonesia in this regard, and this goes back to my multiple greetings, is that these Muslim-majority countries, they're overwhelmingly Muslim statistically, are unusual for the number of non-Muslim religious holidays that are acknowledged and formally celebrated. And if you look at some of his late articles, he, he returned to this theme, which again might seem trivial. But of course, when you think about it in terms of a broader understanding of recognition, the politics and ethics of recognition, I think you can, we can quickly understand it isn't. But he, he pointed out that it's in these Muslim-majority countries. It's not just that there are a few more non-majoritarian, that is to say, non-religious holidays, but there's, uh, in Western democracies, there's virtually no recognition for religious holidays for anything other than Christian traditions. And he gave statistics really quite striking. And then he provided other examples of, of uh, countries like Indonesia, Senegal, and some others, where this kind of habituation, which might seem formal, such as the Om Shalom, Om Swastiastu, Om Rahayu, Rahayu incidentally is for the adherents of Kaprachaya and the just recently recognized religious traditions in India, Indonesia. At any rate, uh, Al pointed out that it's, it's habits like this that do matter because they underscore a public ethic, a public commitment to the recognition of plurality. And in some ways, that's what I think all three of these very fine papers, which I really enjoyed, they have a kind of geographic complexity to them that I think was, if I'm not mistaken, the greatest of all the panels today. So there, that puts 
me in a little bit of an awkward position as to how to quite pull out some common themes, but I will. One of them goes back to one of the several points, many points that Professor Mohammed Hashim Kamali, whose work I always, as I said to him this morning, I always found that find not just so intellectually rigorous and sophisticated, but spiritually beautiful. But one of the themes that he emphasized was uh, a theme going back to Ghazali and Shaktibi al-Shaktibi on the Maqasid, which I interpret in a, in a link to a broader process, which is also seen in each of these three countries. And is, was also seen in uh, the other panels today, that it, which has to do with kind of cultural and religious equivalents in other traditions and in other periods and in other discourses to what the maqasid is about, what are the, the effort to identify and to emphasize and to highlight the maqasid al-shari'ah. For those of you perhaps not entirely familiar with that terminology within Islamic fiqh or jurisprudence, has to do with the higher aims, not just the aims, but the higher aims, has to do with the effort to sort of identify and aggregate certain values that underlie the great diversity of hukum, the very the great diversity of rules and regulations that in some sense are central to the sharia and certainly the spirit of the sharia. And what I'm suggesting, what I have always been struck by when I think about the maqasid and the kind of the periodic return to it, and of course, the centrality of maqasid reflection in modern Islamic jurisprudential and even more importantly, ethical thought, public ethical thought, what, am I, what I'm reminded of is that this is really a process that has its counterpart in other religious traditions, and it has its counterpart in other ethical traditions. How so? Because the concern with the maqasid is fundamentally a concern with what really matters. What is the central message, the central concern, and the practices that go with this, that we, in times of change, in the face of far-reaching change, in the face of political turmoil, what is it that we recognize and want to affirm God wants most centrally from us? Or if, it, if you're a secular and a non-religious person, what are those human values that are most? And, and to go back to uh, Professor Kamali's presentation today and, and these three presentations, I think in some way all three of these presentations are variations on the theme of different religious communities, different national communities, to ask themselves, to attempt to determine what really matters. How are we to understand our faith? How are we, if we're not doing it exclusively or even primarily within a religious tradition, how are we to understand our ethical ties and modes of recognition one of each other? And that's, that's what's so fascinating. I think that's the theme. It's a, a maqasid theme. But it's a maqasid theme that has its counterparts in secular ideologies. It has its counterpart in humanism. It has its counterpart in all ethical traditions, including, for example, Hindu Tzfa, uh, which came up in Mr. McClaney's paper, where, again, he, the, the very rise of Hindu Tzfa, like the rise of certain hardline and conservative varieties of Islam, not least Daesh, has pressed, not surprisingly pressed Muslims to say, is this, is this what, is what is being presented here? Is this what Islam is? Is this the higher aims? Is this what our faith, our revel the revelation that we are getting is, is really about? The same thing is happening in Hindu Tfah. The same thing is happening in the United States with the democratic tradition, the liberal tradition, even the secular variety of it in the face of the rise of a certain political figure whose name slips my mind. 
but which where again people in the face of this tumultuous change they they ask what is what are the what are the higher aims that united us and to which we are supposed to in our politics and public life are supposed to in some ways be committed professor islam's very nice paper very troubling paper on secularism islamism and minorities in bangladesh i think shows us a particularly dramatic example illustration of this contest the fact that it's the, the the concern with what really matters what are the values that bring us together define us as a people as a nation how they're subject to revisitation when one charter one way of understanding how we are bound together as a people bound not just materially or politically or institutionally but ethically uh, one such charter begins for a large number of people in this instance as a result of a certain understanding of islam and an islamic resurgence that charter the received charter which in the case of bangladesh was originally had a kind of variation of secularism although i'm a little uncomfortable with that i'll return to that in a moment but it was certainly had by comparison with pakistan at that time and today uh, a greater and effort to apply and implement a kind of secular charter for citizenship coexistence commensality living together and that was over the course of the past 30 years it's been increasingly challenged as professor islam i think showed very very nicely it's uh, both a fascinating case it has its counterparts in many parts of the world but the question that i would have and it's it's not a critical question it's just a reflection is uh, i i'm a little bit uncomfortable the question i have is this real was this really about political islam it's as it's again i i think it has its counterparts in the united states when some people say well trump is around the rise of a certain conservative try variety of christianity and i said well really or is it just kind of the instrumentalization of whatever works whatever gets you power whatever draws mass support so you you say you're you're using islam or you say you're using uh conservative christian values but really you're just sort of being uh an instrumentalist and somewhat opportunist but smart because you survey the social landscape and you think what what kind of appeal ethical and political is going to get me leverage to challenge the political establishment with which i don't agree so th there's that observation i think professor islam you were absolutely right and presented a very compelling case for showing that this was a matter of islamism versus secularism in some sense but more fundamentally it was about a greater free for all a loss of consensus in which one draws on whatever resources are in hand and just uses what one can to mobilize one followers against one's political rival so islamism versus secularism in some ways is what it came out to be but in a more a deeper way it was more superficial it was about a contest for power that compromised in some ways undercut i think for some people for certainly for some of my bangladeshi friends compromised the very meaning of islam i think of course here of shahab Ahmed's book What is Islam the importance of being Islamic which is about the tradition of Islam from the Balkans to Bengal What is Islam the importance of Islamic a book that's had enormous influence in Islamic study circles and he he comes back again and again to the point that what is Islam and how one should be Islamic has been a central preoccupation and a deeply important preoccupation of Muslim thinkers 
and Muslim politicians and Muslim civilization for more than a thousand years. And it's not clear to me that that's really what the politics of secularism versus Islamism is about. I think in many ways, we are what we're seeing in Bangladesh is just a playing out of politics. The fact that it has a religious component is decidedly tertiary. And in fact, in the eyes, I think of some people, it might have a corrupting or impoverishing effect on the public discourse of Islam. But it's a powerful example. And I thank Professor Islam for it. It's, uh, it's very, very thought provoking. Pa'asri and Dikki Sofyan, Dikki is a friend of mine, um, present us with a, a deeply pessimistic or at least uh, correctingly, correctively um, complicating portrayal of Indonesia, uh, pointing out that a discourse of harmony, kurukunan is how Indonesians describe it. A discourse of harmony has been was used in the Suharto era, the 32 year long period of authoritarian rule in Indonesia, which fell in 1998, was followed by reformasi. Uh, but the, as, uh, as Diki and uh, Pa Asri point out, uh, something of the shadow of the discourse of harmony, not just something, but a lot of this, uh, the discourse of harmony remains. And it, it's used to quarantine and restrict the influence of, and indeed public conceptualization and discussion of freedom. I think that's true, but I think there may also be some other things going on. So I'm going to pre present this as a kind of an observation, but also uh, not a critique, but an invitation for you to comment further. I think we sometimes blame Suharto too much. I'm not a defender of the new order at all, as people who know my work on Indonesia will know. But it was under the Suharto regime that the Indonesian State Islamic University, the UEN as it's called here, the State Islamic University and the EIEN became what is, I work on Islamic education, what I think is one of the finest state-supported higher education Islamic educational systems in the world. That began under Suharto. It wasn't because of Suharto. It was in many ways despite Suharto, but it was, re it was reflective of processes taking place in Islamic society, above all, kind of intellectualization of the way in which Muslims, Indonesian Muslims, particularly those who came out of higher education, but especially Islamic higher education, not the secular, quote unquote, secular state system. It's the state Islamic university system and it's the Muhammadiyah 137, or I think now it's 152. Muhammadiyah run Muhammadiyah is the second largest Islamic organization in Indonesia, the second largest in the world. Nafatu Ulama is the first the largest in Indonesia, the largest Islamic social welfare organization in the world. And it was largely because, I just to, just to sort of complicate the story, I think it was largely because of changes in society that didn't reflect a kind of passive subordination to the Suhartoist emphasis on harmony that the Muhammadiyah, that Muhammadiyah intellectuals and Nadatu Ulama intellectuals nurtured a different culture created educational institutions, a spirit of inquiry that, to go back to uh, Professor Kamali's talk again, that if you will return to the spirit of a search for the Mahasid saying, okay, we're Muslims. What really matters for us as Muslims? And then of course, within an Islamic framework, what are the Mahasid and how do we make them living and vibrant and real, not just sort of empty references? So I think very important to say that the Suharto regime put great emphasis on a, harm, a discourse of harmony that contained and restricted genuine religious freedom. 
But we also have to recognize two things. First of all, that there were countercurrents in Islamic society. I am not as all as despairing of the state of this society at all. I think Indonesia is the most remarkable democratic Muslim country in the world with apologies to my Tunisian friends and sister. And I think it remains vibrant and positive and it's confronting a whole series of democratic challenges, the most significant of which is exclusivist populism, which is Indonesian variety of the same process that has complicated identity politics in the United States and which has been exploited so successfully by my president. And that, that that's also what we see with Hindutva. There's a similar kind of rise of exclusivist populism. It's very complicated, particularly since it's quite striking that that exclusivist populism isn't something from the poor disenfranchised masses. It has its base to a significant degree in the lower middle class and middle class. That's a longer argument, but the point is uh, I think that there are still great resources for civility, democratic civility, and a democratic civility that is more freedom accommodating. And again, I go back to the state, to the Muhammadiyah states, uh, religious schools and the state Islamic university systems, check out their curriculum, check out the scholars who are associated with them, and then look briefly at scholars like Pat Zainal here, who will be speaking tomorrow, who's not at a state Islamic university, but it's at the Universitas Gajamada, but brings to this project of looking at the challenge of freedom and plurality in Indonesia, brings to it a deeply religiously informed understanding and is able to have the influence that he has and he's affected constitutional court decisions, particularly the 2017 constitutional court decision on re religious minorities, again, known as, as spiritual beliefs who is before 2017 had very limited recognition and rights. So he, he was able to act again because of something that's remarkable and often unremarked and scholars of Indonesian society, which has to do with these quiet coalitions, which in the democratic era have, if you will, built coalitions, not launched big protests, but built coalitions of NGOs, religious scholars, especially Islamic scholars, but also Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and made a huge difference. Indonesia is a very, we need to tell that story and, and not, the shadow of Suharto and the emphasis on harmony is still there. So is a remarkable intellectual dynamic and a process of cultural renewal in the Muslim community and in Indonesia as a whole that is uh, perhaps not a political model, but as a, as a kind of cultural reality is a wonder to behold. Lastly, uh, Pak Mikrani, if I can call you as an Indonesian. Again, the fascinating example of Nepal, I kept thinking as you were describing the situation, I kept thinking of India and Hindutva, the rise of conservative and again, exclusivist populist Hinduism, which is, of course, had greater success. And that was, I was relieved to hear. I don't actually know a lot about Nepal. I, I pretend to teach a little bit about India and Hindutva and uh, pretend to talk about the way and why it has succeeded and the fact and how its success in some sense reflects the way in which a kind of politicization and an instrumentalization of religion can once again impoverish what would in this case be the Hindu equivalent of a kind of reflection on the Makassid. What are the higher aims, the higher goals, the, the deepest ethical values of Hinduism? And I think Pat Mikrani showed us that while Hindutva is there and it's clearly contributing to this exclusivist populist discourse that would deny recognition, not just freedom, but recognition, first of all, as citizens, as equals, and without that freedom is impossible. 
So there's a contingency. There's a contingency there that remains much more hopeful. And I think that was therefore a very appropriate case study on which to end. It, it reminds us that even in the face of, again, these instrumentalizations of religion that, as I've suggested, corrupt and make difficult a genuine and a deeper search for what in Islam and Islamic ethical discourse is called the maqasid and their realization, the equivalent of that in, in Hinduism and Buddhism in places like Myanmar is made much more difficult through processes of exclusivist populization and, if I may, this is a little bit off the cuff, but cheap politicization, made much more difficult by those processes. And, but you left us, uh, Mr. Makrani, with a note of hope. And I thank you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Bob. Um, mm. Short question for Robert Hafner. I like your um, <laughs> beginning of the response, the greeting. And I'm sure that you're aware of uh, today's news in Indonesia. Uh, the MUI East Java. Um, well, they say to the government in East Java to not use other religious greeting. Yeah, it's in the news today. So how would you directly react to that? I have just one word response to the, I had not heard about the East Java governor who issued the, say, okay, so my one word is city, huh. which means sad. Though, though perhaps would you or um, uh, Dr. Osri, would you care to comment about the question uh, concerning Taylor and Habermas and whether uh, the use of religious reasoning is a, is a better way to promote the ideals of uh, communicative action and liberalism, or is it better to restrain uh, and use uh, non-exclusive non language? Is that, is that a fair way to put your question? Briefly, I'll, I'll if give you a brief comments. and yeah. I'll pass yeah. it. Yeah. But brief, it's, a great, it's an excellent question. Yeah. It's a debate which you're in contrast and with which I'm, I've been uh, long interested, as I know you have, Tim. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's Taylor who prevails in Indonesia and in the United States, perhaps not in France, in societies where the very presence of public religious discourse in the public sphere is viewed as unacceptable. But in most of the Muslim world, most Hindu majority countries, most Theravada Buddhist countries, when we can go on, uh, it's not merely, uh, it's not merely something that's happened. It's something that is required. But that leads to my second point much more briefly. The question then is, as we saw in the examples of Bangladesh and as we see in Indonesia today, or as we saw in Nepal, the question is, what variety of Islam, what variety of Hinduism? You know, is it to be Hindutva, vilifying Christians and, and, and non-Muslims? Is it to be some kind of exclusivist populism? Uh, and that's why I brought into this discussion my last words. Uh, this really remarkable book by the South Asian scholar who used to teach at Harvard, he passed away young. What is Islam? The importance of being Islamic. A beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, if you have uh, water sources, you don't get tayammum in Islam. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed and would like to explore more, visit IslamicLibertyNetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.